Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Should be a, a well done given out to Joe Goldsby. He's not here today. He said he was pulling an engine out of a car. Um, so we gave him an excused absence from church. But he preached last week while I was at the beach with my middle school basketball team. And uh, I was able to tune in to the, well, the live stream after it was done. Uh, so not in live time, but, but afterward. And he just did a great job. And so uh, maybe if he's watching, we can give him a round of applause. On the, he t- catch on the live stream today. Uh, our team got a consolation medal, by the way. I'm sure many of you just want to know how did that go. Uh, we didn't get the first place trophy, but we, we got a consolation medal. So, um, yeah, that's, that's what it's all about, right? I, I was thinking as I was, you know, watching the, the YouTube live stream, I was thinking to myself, how crazy is it that we have a YouTube live stream? Uh, and of course, it feels normal because after COVID, every church has a YouTube live stream. I mean, most every church. But when I think about myself and and our starting renewal and our kind of our philosophy on church, like we really tend to shy away from like cameras and things like that. And yet here we are. We've got a, a mediocre live stream. And so... <laughs> So then I was thinking about how since we started the live stream, I know I, I've heard from people who have come and visited or, or people who have joined the church that that was their introduction to our church, that they were just, you know, checking out churches and checking out live streams. Maybe some of you, this is how you ended up here. Um, and they thought, well, you know, the music's okay. Teaching's all right. They, they have a live stream. And, uh, and that's how people visit churches for the first time. What a thing, right? That people visit churches digitally before they show up. I can see things about that would be great and and things that aren't. Of course, uh, we're used to this concept of checking things out online before we actually make a commitment. I know for me, the advent of the internet has transformed the way I shop. And when I'm looking for something I tend to look for it first online. One, maybe just try to get an idea of how much I should pay for it. Two, to try to get an idea of what kinds of features I should be looking for. And one of my favorite things in online shopping is you ever do like the side-by-side comparisons on Amazon and they have all the little check boxes. And so you can look right there and figure out just exactly how these things compare to each other. I love that. What a miraculous age we live in where I don't have to, see, this is what I remember. My experience growing up, and let's say going grocery shopping with my mother. So she's got a stack of coupons this big, and we're going to three different stores to save, you know, 30 cents on a pound of beef. And how cumbersome and tiring, and it's a day-long affair. And now I can just online check it all out. I imagine, especially if I was looking for a new church, what an advantage that is. I don't have to actually... Because most of their services are all at the same time, inconveniently, right? And so I don't have to take, you know, eight months to try out every church in town. I can just catch the live stream later. Uh, Our culture really conditions us to be thoughtful 
and researched consumers. And I think sometimes we take that distinctive cultural characteristic and we allow it to influence how we approach Jesus. We're looking for Jesus to maybe check certain boxes or we're coming to our Lord and Savior with a consumerist mentality. The question I want to raise today is what do you do when Jesus doesn't check the box that you wanted him to check? What do you do when he doesn't show you that feature that you really were hoping he had? Or he reveals a characteristic that might actually be somewhat troubling to you. Now, as I throw that out there, I imagine, because even in my own mind, I respond to those phrases and I think, no, I'm, I'm pretty committed to Jesus. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't disappoint me or let me down. I'm pretty sure that I would humbly accept him as he is. But as we're going through the Gospel of John, I think you're not reading it all, you know, word for word or line for line if you don't end up with things that surprise you. In John chapter 7, there was something that Jesus did that even though I knew he did it, even though I had read it before, I thought, wow, that one's really troubling to me. Just to set the stage, John chapter 7 brings up this old controversy that Jesus has been having with the religious leaders from back in John chapter 5. For those of you who don't remember just simply from the chapter reference, uh, at least three or four of you in the room, I'll recap just a little bit. In John chapter 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem for one of the festivals, and he ends up healing a paralyzed man on the Sabbath. The religious leaders become really upset about this because not only has he healed a paralyzed man on the Sabbath, but he also told that man when he healed him to carry his mat. And carrying a mat was considered work, and work is strictly forbidden on the Sabbath in first century Judaism, according to the law of Moses that they've been following for, you know, over a thousand years at this point. Chapter 7 starts by setting the scene, saying that Jesus is intentionally staying away from Judea or staying away from Jerusalem because the Jewish leaders ever since that time back in John chapter 5 have been looking for a way to kill him. Why do they want to kill him? Well, he's becoming a popular figure. People are thinking he just might be the promised Messiah, but he's not following the law the way that they want him to. God said not to work on the Sabbath. We've had that one written down for ages. And this guy comes out claiming to be a Messiah figure of sorts, and yet he's healing on the Sabbath. He didn't just heal. He actually told someone to carry their mat. He's commanding people to work on the Sabbath. He's not checking the boxes that we have. And so he must be evil, he's a threat, he must be eliminated. We have no choice but to kill him. Now, that kind of a response, I think most of us will chalk up to just being from a more barbaric time. Uh, this idea that we would just kill somebody because they're not lining up and checking the boxes that we want. And I know for me, I'll, I'll think to myself, well, I definitely would never be guilty of such a thing. I mean, I, I tend to live in a live and let live mentality, especially towards religious disagreements. But then I was reminded this week of what Jesus said about murder in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you've heard it said long ago, you should not kill or you should not murder. Then he said, uh, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister is going to be guilty of judgment, or sorry, subject to judgment. And anyone who says to their 
brother or sister Raka, or you fool, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. And so although I can distance myself from any judgment that might come on those who would be seeking to kill somebody for religious reasons, when Jesus' teaching begins to push its way into the nuanced attitudes of my heart where I see anger, where I see judgment, where I see uh, at times an attitude towards others that says they're fools, they're worthless, I begin to realize that every time I read about these Pharisees, I'm seeing a lot of myself in them. I'm seeing a lot more of myself in them than at times I'm comfortable with admitting. So in their frustration with Jesus and his lack of following or checking the boxes that they want, I begin to see my own desire to measure all things religious with nice boxes and nice categories and nice checks and and making a way, a system for everything to make sense for me so that I can know how I'm doing and so that I can be confident in my judgments against others and how they're doing as well. And I wonder if there's a different way to think about these things. And we'll look to John chapter 7 for a different way today. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. John chapter 7, verse 1. You can turn there and read with me if you like. I'm reading out of the NIV. It says, after this, Jesus, this is after the feeding of the 5,000, or John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He didn't want to go about in Judea or Jerusalem because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. That makes sense. When the Jewish festival of tabernacles tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You should leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. And since you're doing these things, you should show yourself to the world. Jesus' brothers, his family, are there around him. He's had this popular ministry. He's becoming a famous preacher. And they're saying to him, because it's the festival, and this is the time when people go up to Jerusalem, they're saying to him, hey, it'd be a great move for your ministry to go up to Jerusalem, gain some more notoriety, show yourself to the world, show them who you are and what you can do. Then John adds this to what they said to Jesus. They says, John says, for even his own brothers did not believe him. Jesus' own brothers don't believe him. He's not checking all of the boxes that they have either for Messiah. I was thinking about John writing this. What a thing to write in the middle of an account that you're writing that is committed to convince other people of Christ's divinity, that Jesus is the Messiah. And then you just add this detail in there. Oh, by the way, at this point in the story, his own brothers thought he was bogus. What a thing to write. His brothers cannot understand why someone with Jesus' abilities, and I'd imagine they at least had heard about his abilities, understood his abilities. They didn't believe he was God come in the flesh, but they understood he was something special. They cannot understand why he wouldn't want to be a public figure, why he wouldn't want to shine brightly. Why he wouldn't want to be live streaming everything that he's doing. Jesus says to them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. Starting verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Why don't you go up to the festival? I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. Jesus' brothers say to him, you should go up to the festival. He says to them, this isn't the right time. For me to go to the festival, 
Jesus' brothers say to him, why don't you show yourself to the world, reveal yourself to the world? Everyone should know who you are. If you really are who you say you are, Jesus says to them, it's not the right time for that quite yet. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. What time is it that Jesus is talking about? I think that what Jesus is talking about is the timing of his own death, of his own sacrifice. Jesus knows by the prophetic witness of the Old Testament, which he's very familiar with, he knows by that and through some kind of foresight, some witness from the Holy Spirit that's in him and with him, he knows that he must go to Jerusalem and offer himself as a sacrifice for all the people. He knows that he is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. He knows that this sacrifice was foretold not just in the garden, but again in the miracle of Passover in the Hebrew tradition. And he knows that for the fulfillment of all things, he needs to be in Jerusalem at the festival of Passover when he will make his sacrifice, not the festival of tabernacles. He knows that the time that he dies is so important for it to be clear to all of humanity who it is that he really is. And if you're curious about some of those dynamics, then I really insist that you come to our Seder dinner. Sign up for that. We'll be celebrating the Passover with a Jewish for Jews for Jesus friend who will share all about the insights that the Passover supper and tradition has into Christ's sacrifice and the importance of that. Uh, so I won't waste any time on that. Sign up for the Seder dinner. Um, but he knows it's imperative that when he offers up his life in Jerusalem, it happens during the Passover festival and not this one. This is, what he's, this is why he doesn't go. In verse 10, though, we read, However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. What did Jesus say to his brothers? I'm not going to this festival because it's not the right time. Then what did Jesus do? He went to the festival. I get really, really bothered when somebody says they're going to do something and then they do something else. Does anyone else get really bothered by this? I get really bothered when I do it. Oh, I don't think anything would bring me more shame than realizing that I haven't delivered on something that I said I was going to do. And because our own vices tend to bother us the most when we see them in other people, I get really, really judgy if somebody says they were going to do something and then they don't do it. I'm bothered by Jesus doing this, by saying this to his disciples, or sorry, saying this to his brothers and then doing something different. I, I know I'm not the only one who's bothered because uh, if you read in the NIV, there's a little uh, footnote under verse 8 where Jesus says, I'm not going up to this festival. And if you go down to the bottom of the page and you read what the footnote is, it, it tells you that some translations, or sorry, some manuscripts say, I'm not yet going up to this festival. So somebody copying the text at some point tried to clean that up a little bit for us, right? Jesus didn't really say he wasn't going to the festival. He said he's not yet going to the festival. However, those who translate the scriptures into English seem to be in firm agreement that what the original text said was, I'm not going up to the festival, not, not yet. They put the not yet there in a footnote just in case somebody needed an out. 
just in case somebody needed the text scrub for them. But it seems to be that everyone agrees, and you can read through, I read through a number of translations this week, you can read through them all. They all say, I'm not going to this festival. It's not the right time. And then he goes to the festival. I don't know about you, but a deceitful savior just does not check all my boxes. There's this thing in the Old Testament about not bearing a false witness. In a, in, a, in a black and white world, I just think, man, I might not be able to get over this. But I want to encourage you to stay with me and not abandon the ship. Verse 11, we'll keep reading. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and they were asking, where is he? And among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. Deceived his brothers, at least. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Then it wasn't until halfway through the festival that Jesus went up to the temple courts and began to teach. And the Jews there were amazed and they said, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? And Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own, but it comes from the one who sent me. And anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. And whoever speaks on their own does not, sorry, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. So why are you trying to kill me? We've talked before how the book of John is prone to these long monologues and long phrases, and it makes it particularly hard to teach out of for a, a culture who are used to sound bites and like, you know, give me three verses for the day and that'll be good and I'll, I'll be ready to go. It's tough. And we just read through all of that. And part of it, I'm like, I don't know why I'm reading this, but, you know, somebody went to all the trouble to record it for me. So I guess we'll read it out here aloud together. What is, what is going on here? Here's the controversy. This man has broken the law of Moses. The religious leaders and authorities in that culture are saying, this man is evil. This man shows up at the festival to talk about, sorry, tapped the wrong thing. He shows up at the festival to talk about the kingdom of God. And people are right away divided on him. Is he good? Is he bad? We're not sure. The first thing he stands up to say is that you're all saying you're mad at me for breaking the law of Moses, but I want to remind you that every one of you has broken the law of Moses. Why is that important? Because I think oftentimes when we are judging other people according to the boxes that we're looking for people to check, we forget about our own guilt. Our leadership team in preparation for our leadership retreat has, is spending this coming week memorizing one of the Psalms of Ascent. There's 14 Psalms of Ascent that were recited by pilgrims who were heading up to Jerusalem for the festivals. I imagine that when Jesus headed up to Jerusalem, he was reciting these Psalms as he walked up there by himself, not with his brothers, in secret. The one that I chose to memorize is Psalm 130. And part of Psalm 130 says this, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, then, Lord, who could possibly stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence 
serve you. This is a part of the passage that jumped out at me. This is why I chose this particular chapter to memorize, because there is something in us that we forget all too often, and that's that we're to consider ourselves the chief of all sinners. The Apostle Paul said, here is a trustworthy saying that bears keeping in mind. Christ died to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. The first thing that Jesus is confronting this crowd on, these people who feel that they're justified in making judgments about who he is or whether he's legitimate or not, is reminding them that every single one of them has fallen short of the law of Moses. And so all this talk about killing him should really come to a halt. He says, every one of you, yet not one of you has kept the law of Moses, so why are you trying to kill me? They respond, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? And Jesus says, I did one miracle. You were all amazed. Talking about multiplying the loaves and the fishes, I think, but possibly about the healing of the paralyzed man. But he says, and yet Moses gave you circumcision. Though actually it didn't come from Moses, but from the patriarchs. And yet you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Jesus is saying to this crowd that's all riled up about whether or not he's following the law, whether or not he's checking the boxes. He's saying to them, one, you're all living in sin yourselves, right? Not a single one of you has kept the law. Two, your sense of right and wrong, you, you've colored this world in black and white, and you've colored it completely incorrectly. And he brings up a common example from their culture. So they have this tradition, this commandment of circumcision. Circumcision is where they removed the foreskin from the male child as a sign that this child belonged to the covenant people of God. This was a sign testifying that this child is a part of God's covenant people. This is one of God's chosen people, a people who were chosen out of all the apostate humanity that had turned away from God, had been turned over to their own rebellion. And yet, through this people that God has chosen and made a covenant with, God's plan is to reconcile all of creation back to himself. In this ritual of circumcision, when they're allowed to do it on the Sabbath, it's, it's work to circumcise, I, I believe. In, 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 in emphasizing that this, this commandment takes precedence over the commandment to rest on the Sabbath, what we're seeing here is the fact that belonging to the covenant people is emphasized over the behavior that follows the law. This ritual is performed, it's sealed to proclaim what is already true about the children of Abraham, that they belong to God. They've been chosen by God. It's meant to, to seal what's already true. It's meant to proclaim what, what is already meant, what's always been meant to be, that these people are my people and I'm their God and we're going to walk together. And this whole thing took precedence over the point that the Sabbath was making that was trying to bring God's people into the rhythm uh, of a steady relationship with him 
to be joined with him and resting with him in the completeness of his creation. Just like the seventh day narrative from creation talks about God rested on this day. The work was complete. And then God commanded his Sabbath so that his people would join him in resting in his completed work. But because this rite of circumcision points to this eternal truth that God has set in motion a plan to reconcile and restore all of the children of Abraham, circumcision was considered bigger than, greater than the commandment to follow the Sabbath. I think in the same way, Jesus' act of healing is an act of restoration to the deepest truth of humanity. It's an act that's meant to return things to, way, to the way that they're meant to be. In the story of creation, we see that creation is good. We see humanity made in God's image and, and not made for sin or disease or death, but made to live eternally in relationship with him. And when Jesus would come and break through and provide physical healing for people, that kind of restoration for people, he's proclaiming the way that things were always meant to be. He's proclaiming the true state of way humans are meant to be. It was a healing ritual that was pointing back to the greater truth behind all of the systems and the boxes that had been set up. Jesus' healing didn't need to check the box. Hey, make sure you don't do any healing on the Sabbath because he's not supposed to do that. That's what would check the box. It didn't need to check a box because it's much bigger than the things that came later. The deepest truth about Jesus is that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And there were all kinds of Messiah boxes that people were looking for him to check in that day that he had to leave unchecked in order to be committed to the truth of his mission. He had to break the Sabbath because when he was met with somebody who needed healing, proclaiming the truth that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one who's restoring and setting all things right was much more important than following the letter of the law. He had to disappoint the zealots who had all of their hopes on him coming and overthrowing the Romans. That checked the Messiah box for them. They wanted a warrior king who would set them free from the oppression of the Romans. He had to disappoint them. At times, he had to not speak plainly. When he's on trial before Pilate, he had to not speak plainly. He was determined to endure the cross. He could have called down legions of heaven and said, yep, I am the Son of God, cease the crucifixion. But no, he was committed to being the Lamb of God, the sacrifice. I think in this particular story, he had to mislead his brothers about his intentions to travel up to the festival to ensure that his presence in the festival happened in the right place so that it didn't lead to some kind of mob crucifixion at the wrong time. As offensive as his misleading might be, it would seem that Christ is so committed to being the Lamb of God, to proclaiming the truth of what God is doing in the world, that this is what he does. This is what worked. Verse 25, we read, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the guy that they're trying to kill? 
Well, here he is speaking publicly, and yet they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? As the account continues through the next few verses, so does the confusion. We see this tension beginning to build. We see a crowd that's divided. Should he be killed? Is he the Messiah? And out of that tension, we see soldiers being sent to arrest him and coming back empty-handed. Through those circumstances that Jesus showed up and the way that he ended up revealing himself there, somehow that all kept his adversaries from being able to kill him and find him and capture him there in that moment. And so while some may get hung up on Jesus not checking the religious boxes that we want, I wonder if this becomes a good opportunity for us to let some of those boxes go. Maybe Jesus really is building something that's bigger and grander than just another world religion that has nice rules to follow, and if you follow the rules, you know that you're in. Maybe he really is paving the way for the redemption of humanity. I really think that Jesus' determination to endure the cross, to suffer and die, to sacrifice himself, superseded anything else that he could have done. And I really think that it's not up to us to rewrite the narrative of his life or to patch it up so that it becomes more palatable for other people. It's not up to us to try to explain away the difficult moments. I think the invitation comes to us in those moments to lean into it and to just acknowledge that we don't really fully understand who Jesus actually is. It's up to us to come humbly before these moments and to say, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, give us a greater revelation of who Jesus is. Give us the grace to trust and believe that he really is who he says he is. We do not want to end up like the Pharisees and the religious leaders who were so prone to ending up just like. We don't want to get hung up on the boxes that we're trying to check in our Savior shopping. I only want the version of Jesus that suits me and my preferences or my expectations. No, we need to be people who long for whoever Jesus really is. I, the the more I walk with Jesus, the more I'm beginning to understand that he's far greater and grander than I could have ever imagined. He's far bigger than I could have ever imagined. And so I want to surrender some expectations today. I want to surrender some of those boxes today.